building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. So last week, we got to have this great conversation, uh, Dr. Getz, about the COVID that you had, and we talked about a measure of a man and masculinity and your study Bible. And this week, I want to ask you some tough questions, because I'm talking to a living legend doctrinally, and uh, as I had said last week, you know, when I have tough questions, I go to you and I ask you, hey, what, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? Well, I I think you have a little more confidence in me than I have in myself, but... uh... (laughs) We'll isn't give it a true? try. We'll isn't that try. true of all godly men, right? Oh, even well, Paul, even Paul said, "Hey, I'm not even sure I made the best resurrection yet." Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> if Paul's not sure of himself, yeah, right. Okay. I don't trust anybody who is. Right. You know, really, it's become a a kind of a pop thing. And just to repeat what we had said last week, you were you've been a pastor forever. You were a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is one of the greatest seminaries in the world, back in the heyday with all kinds of legends. Um, you're you're a man that one can go to with um, doctrinal questions. There's this pop thing about people wanting to find their spiritual gifts. So, so Scripture says in several places that we're part of a body of Christ. Each of us has different functions, and each of us has different gifts that we've been given. And sometimes those are obvious, and sometimes they're not. But there's tests people can take, almost like a angiogram or a personality test that sort of says your gifts are these and your gifts are those. What do you what do you think of all that? Well, you know, uh, Ken, I went through a period of time in my life where I was really researching this whole area, particularly when I was thinking through ecclesiology and uh, wrote a book called Sharpening the Focus of the Church, really, which was the basis of starting the First Fellowship Bible Church, which has expanded tremendously. But I really wanted an answer to this question in terms of spiritual gifts, because I had been teaching how important it is to look for your gifts, to try to to find your gifts to, in order to be a part of the body of Christ. And I began to see it confusing people rather than clarifying. Uh, I saw people saying, well, I don't know what it is. I've been trying to find out what it is. And I've said, well, just try to practice Christianity and you'll find out what it is. And uh, they said, well, I've been doing that. I've been doing that. And I'm still not sure what it is. And even my wife said, you know, Gene, I'm not sure what my gift is. And uh, of all people, she would certainly be open to knowing what it is. And and then I also saw people who said they had gifts, and it was a bit obvious to me, at least, that what they thought was a gift wasn't particularly a gift. And I saw that across the spectrum, whether it was charismatic or non-charismatic. I, I've seen some people who seem to think that criticism is a spiritual gift. Yeah, right. right, That's right. And and by the way, I think there are some people that really literally believe that. We laugh about it, but... uh, You and I are both thinking of the same person right now, but we're not going to say it. Yeah, maybe so, right. (laughs) Well, and and so, you know, across that spectrum of charismatic, non-charismatic, I saw people saying, well, this is my gift. And as I really looked at it and followed it and watched it and I just thought, you know, that doesn't that doesn't ring true. 
in terms of Scripture. And then as I looked at Scripture, I didn't see many definitions of what they really were. How can you evaluate them? What was the criteria? And so I spent a summer, I was actually teaching up in um, uh, Canada at a Bible college. And I had a lot of time to not only teach, but to research. And so I spent two weeks going through the New Testament, looking at every reference. And all of a sudden, I saw that nowhere in the New Testament was I told to look for my gift. And I thought, whoa. And I went back and I checked myself on that. Uh, and then I began to test it with other people that I really trusted. And they would say, Gene, I think you're right. Now, there's one passage that always comes up, and that is uh, in Corinthians where it says to seek the greater gifts. But you've got a problem there because the greater gifts are clearly apostle and prophet and teacher. And if we're to seek the greater gifts, that means we're just, it's saying to the body of Christ, seek to be an apostle, seek to be a prophet, seek to be a teacher in terms of a revelatory kind of teaching. And, uh, and that doesn't make sense. And then if you look at the text carefully, what Paul is really saying there in the second person plural, he's saying, give attention, Corinthians, to the greater gifts. Because they were rejecting Paul, who had the greater gift of apostle. They were rejecting Apollos. Some were rejecting Peter. And so Paul was saying, give attention to those who are apostles, prophets, and teachers. And uh, those are the ones that you should give attention to because they're revelatory gifts. And in essence, it's those gifts that gave us the New Testament the apostles' teaching and the prophets and the teachers. So that's the only passage that even comes remotely close, and it doesn't really mean to look for your gift as an as a individual member of the body of Christ. But then I noticed there was a, a comparison with that, and that is that everywhere in the New Testament, I'm told to become like Jesus Christ. I'm to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. I am to reflect these qualities in my life, and very clearly, in First Peter you have a list, and in First Timothy you have a list, and in um, in Titus you have a list, and there are other lists. There are about five or major lists, and these are things that we are to look for, and to allow to come forth out of our lives, and so that really changed my whole emphasis um, in Scripture, and that is to become, and, and in ministry, let's become more and more like Jesus Christ. And here's what it looks like, and here are the qualities, and here's what we should be growing in and maturing. That's the essence, by the way, of my book, The Measure of a Man. Those qualities become that kind of man. And let's become that kind of person and then God will use us in different ways to serve him. And that's become a very freeing concept as I've shared it with people. And, and it helps them to get off this guilt trap, uh, out of this guilt trap, 
of, of, of searching for and getting confused and, uh, and the, some of the things that I mentioned earlier that I noticed, the confusion. Does that make you sense? Know, completely. I, I love it. God says, be holy as I am holy. He didn't say, go, go out and search for your gifts and obsess on yourself. Uh, right. And I do think that there are some of that pop teaching and and current cultural Christianity of thinking and obsessing about ourselves rather than what Christ taught, which is death to self. If he gave you the gifts, then you'll have the gifts. And, and as you grow in him, those will come out and become evident. If you're a wise, if your gift is wisdom, your wisdom comes from Christ as you die to self. If you're, if you're, if it's prophecy, if it's giving, if it's whatever, I still don't know what administration means, but I'm pretty sure I don't have it, whatever it is. But uh, our gifts come from death to self, not obsession with self. And I think that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's a good interpretation of what I just shared. And what I've just shared, you can interpret it in various ways mm-hmm. without my becoming dogmatic. See, I can agree with you and say, yeah. So let's yeah. take on a tougher one. I want to preface this question because it can run afoul of different denominations, um, but I think it's important. Um, and I want people to who are listening, if you have a very strong opinion on this, let's not do what has divided the church for so long, saying, well, Gene Getz and Ken Harrison disagree with me, so I'm never listening to them again. How dare they? Um, which you'd be surprised how much I get that. I, I had somebody get a hold of me recently and, and did not know my my position on this at all, but just said, do you believe that the earth is 6,000 years old? And if you don't, then I'll never listen to you again. And I'll never have any with promise keepers again. It's like, well, you're obviously so immature. I'm not sure that's so much of a loss. You know, I didn't bother to answer their question. Though I did have an interview with he Ross yesterday where he explained why he thinks the earth is 14 billion years old and you scripture do it, which was very interesting, which probably will have aired already by the time you, you and I air. But um, people get all worked up about things. So we have not taken things that are divisive, except for this one question I'm about to come to you with, because I think it's so intrinsic to who we are in the faith. And to have a wrong position on this can really uh, lead people down a wrong path. And that's eternal security. Can a person lose their salvation? So Jesus says it takes belief to be saved, and that's it. He says to Nicodemus, believe on me and you're good. It's it's Moses raising a snake up in the wilderness. If you get bit by a venomous snake, look at the snake and you'll be healed as a precursor to Jesus. Look at the cross and you'll be saved. But there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that sort of, oh, you know, if we deny him, he'll also deny us. It says right after it says he'll never forsake us. So can we lose our salvation, Gene? And if we can or can't, why? Well, let me let me come at that question with my personal experience and allow the theology to kind of emerge in in the process. I grew up in a religious group that, and I'm not going to mention it because I've got a lot of friends within this this group, this religious group, but basically it's a works-oriented religion. It was. It's changing and it's exciting to see some of the changes that are taking place. In fact, some of the leaders are actually using my Life Essential Study Bible. Is that right? And they're anti-education. Basically, this whole movement is anti-education. But I grew up in this religious system that was very works-oriented. Now, I had been exposed enough to biblical teaching on radio to understand that 
that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. At least I thought I understood that. And I became a believer. But I was so entrenched in this religious system that I had tremendous doubts as to my salvation, whether I was really saved. If I, if I felt good and emotionally high and emotionally up, I felt saved. If I felt down, I felt, whoa. Or if I made a mistake or if I did something wrong, I felt that perhaps I'd lost my salvation. So my, my a spirit, torturous feeling. Well, it's like a, a roller coaster. Yeah. You know? And and I went through a couple of years of that, uh of that experience. And I actually went as a student to Moody Bible Institute. And when I entered Moody Bible Institute, I really wasn't sure of my salvation. I really was unsure. And I took this course in the book of Romans, and a lot of it was over my head, but I was learning. And I remember sitting at my desk in the dormitory one morning, and I was reflecting on the course in Romans, and I was thinking my way through it, and I was looking at my life and my ups and downs, and I asked myself the question from Romans. When was Abraham saved? Was he saved when um, when the law was given? Well, he was justified by faith 400 years before the law was given. Was he saved before he was circumcised? Well, Paul said he was saved when he believed God, and God counted to him his righteousness, and that was before he was circumcised. And the reason that was significant to me, you see, I was wrestling because I was taught in this religious system that water baptism was a part of my salvation. And so I was relating that to circumcision. And so I thought, we can't be saved through baptism. That's not part of it. Just as circumcision wasn't a part of, of Abraham's experience. And so I was thinking through that on Abraham. And then I came to Romans 5 in my mind where it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have righteousness with God. We're justified just like Abraham. That's the flow. And it just hit me. I'm saved. I, 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 When I became saved, I was saved by grace through faith, but it was all mixed in with baptismal regeneration. It was all of these works things that were I'd been taught as a child. And, and, uh, so I was just confused. There was this mixture that just didn't hold together. And as I was thinking through that, that morning, it just really hit me. I'm saved by grace through faith and faith alone. And then my mind jumped all the way to Romans 8. And see, I'd been taking this course and wrestling with these concepts. And we were up through Romans 8 and... I went to Romans 8 and I read it. What shall separate me from the love of God? Nothing. Neither death, nor life, nor this, nor that. And he goes on and lists all those things that we are really, in essence, secure in Jesus Christ. And it was at that moment that I was sure of my salvation. And it was at that moment that I felt like no one could take this gift away from me. 
but I still struggled. If, if I'm secure in my faith, then I can just live any way I want. And then the Lord brought into my life a very, you mentioned, we mentioned this in our last program, key books. It was a book uh, called Discipline by Grace. And the author will come to me in a moment. His first name is John. But anyway, someone gave me that book. It's a classic. And it's on Titus chapter 1, or Titus chapter 2. And he builds on this passage which says, uh, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live godly and holy lives in Christ Jesus while we wait for the glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And it was at that point I began to understand Romans 6, where it says, Paul says, should we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. If we understand grace, if we really understand it, it teaches us to live a godly life. In other words, how can we live a sinful life when God has given everything through his son, Jesus? Now, what I'm illustrating is I came to the point of the assurance of salvation. But I have many good friends who would say, but Gene, there are certain passages where it appears you can lose your salvation. And what I, what I like to do is to say, here's my experience. And the important thing to me is, do you know you're saved? Are you really assured of your salvation? And you need to really look at that. And hopefully that they will get into the scriptures and they will experience the assurance of salvation. Now, let me add another little thing here, and I'm doing all the talking. But as you know, that there are some who really pride themselves in being followers of certain theologians. One of them is called Calvinism. The other is Arminianism. And there's sort of a renewal of what we call New Calvinism today. And one of the things that concerns me about that movement as I listen to some of these people, they're more interested, it seems to me, and I'm sure I'll be criticized for this, in promoting <laughs> Calvinism than promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ mm, I think that's and well the grace said. of God and the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus. They're more concerned in, in promoting a, a system to unbelievers. And, and when I look at what Paul did, I never see Paul going into the city of Lystra or Iconium or Antioch and saying, if you, if you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, then you're going to be saved. I don't see Paul saying, if, if, if you're chosen, elected, then you can be saved. What he does is he presents the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And then, to be honest, in my perspective, after people understood the gospel, put their faith in Jesus, then he came in behind that and said, I want you to know that before the foundation of the world, 
you've been chosen in Jesus Christ. And that's, you know, Ephesians chapter 1. You have the assurance of your salvation. Now, that's basically as far as I go in dealing with that issue and helping people to understand. Uh, to me, just to summarize, do you know you're saved? Are you sure of your salvation? And when I became assured of my salvation, it made all the difference in the world. And, and, and it gave me a sense of hope that nothing is going to take me out of the hand of Jesus. Now, I realize there's some that says you can jump out. Uh, I'd have a little bit of a problem with that as well. But the important thing is I know I'm saved. And I'm sure yeah, that I, I'm saved. Does that make sense? Strong. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a, a strong belief in types and shadows that we see over and over in Scripture. Like I mentioned earlier, we have Moses putting the snake up on the pole so that the Israelites have been bitten by vipers. That's a, a, a curse on them. And they look at it and they're saved and it is a saved from the viper. Um, it is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ coming and being hung up on the cross. We, we know that it's from Scripture. So God tells us he's our father. And he tells us when we're saved, we're his children. Well, he created fathers here on earth in the human realm, and it reflects what he's saying up in heaven. So therefore, when I look at it and I say, well, my son, Hunter or Coleman or my daughter, Ashton, um, can they ever stop being my children? No. Can they do things that would hurt our relationship or intimacy? Absolutely. So if my son goes off and murders somebody and gets himself stuck in jail, there's an interruption in our ability to have intimacy. Or if he does something, if he decides he hates me because uh, whatever, because I'm an Oregon Duck fan, um, then he, and he walks away, he can, he can choose to not have a relationship with me, but he's still my son. Now that may interrupt the benefits he gets. That may interrupt the level of inheritance he gets from me someday. That may interrupt whether I give him a place to help rule in my business, right? But it never stops him from being my son. So I, I see these passages talking about loss, that some people talk about loss of salvation as talking about a loss of inheritance, a loss of rewards in the judgment day. Um, because I do believe that Christians mistakenly put everything into salvation or not salvation. And when you realize that there is saved from sin, the, the the penalty of sin, but we're being saved, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, from the power of sin in this life, we can give in to sin and be dominated by it still. Or we can become every day holier and holier and more like God and then therefore have more intimacy with him and understand his will. Um, but we, we misunderstand First John. I mean, if you think it's always about either unsaved or saved, then you can't possibly understand First John. He's saying, if you sin, you have no part in God. Well, what the heck does that mean? He's talking about the closeness of the relationship, not being cast into the lake of fire. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, thinking Jesus is talking about salvation, you're really screwed. Jesus is not talking about how to be saved. He's talking about how to become a disciple, how to have an intimate relationship with the Father, not how to get saved. He told Nicodemus, just believe in me. He wasn't lying to Nicodemus. Right. Same with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's not saying, what do I need to do to be saved? 
Because if he did, Jesus gave him a lie, a lie for an answer. Jesus said, obey the commandments. Well, that's not how you get saved from hell. That's how you become a disciple. That's what the, the rich young ruler was asking him. And when the rich young ruler says, I've done all that. And I think people say he's arrogant for saying that. I don't think so. It, the, it, the, the Mark passage just says, and Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he wanted to give him the truth. He's saying to the rich young ruler, you got a problem, son. I love you, but if you really want to be able to serve me, you love the safety and security of money too much. If you want intimacy with me, you got to give it all away and come and follow him. He's actually inviting this man to come and be a part of his inner circle. And, and the man's saying, I don't value you that much. So that man went away. Think about the, the spine on that man to come to Jesus in the middle of the day. Nicodemus, you know, he slept on in at night because he didn't want to be seen. This rich young ruler actually walks up to Jesus in front of the crowd. He's got some guts. He's, he's someone we can respect. So Jesus is not preaching salvation by works. He's talking about having a better judgment and better intimacy with the Father now. And it's the same as the Sermon on the Mount. Die to yourself daily. Son, I'm not going to tell these other guys they have to give up everything. I'm not going to tell Zacchaeus he has to give away everything because that money has never hold on them like that. But for you, if you really want to know me, you got to give up all your money. So I, I, I think um, we, we put things into this black and white salvation, hell or not hell. And I don't think that's most of what Jesus's words are about. You want to not go to hell? Believe in me. Everything else we're now going to talk about is how to grow in me, be a disciple and be holy. And I think that's where we get these passages screwed up. Yeah. And I think uh, you mentioned the passages and, and explaining those passages, but I think there are other passages too that that deal with the fact that a person was never saved. Mm. They never knew the Lord in the first place. So you, you've you got some of those passages. And let me Hebrews just simply say, 10. yeah, right. Uh, in chapter 6, there's some issues there. Um, but let me say this, that when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, I can't explain it. And you can go to one extreme or the other. And, and the Bible is filled with antinomies. Uh, some like the word paradox. Antinomy means two truths that seem apparently contradictory, and yet they're both true. How can they be? The Bible's filled with that. And I think we have to come to the place where we say, I don't understand that. It's beyond my comprehension. Someday in heaven, I'll Amen. understand it. Someday in heaven, I'm going to understand a little bit of the Trinity. <laughs> I'll probably spend eternity learning about the Trinity or learning about the Incarnation uh, or even learning about how God gave us a book that is written by men and inspired by God uh, or uh, a God who answers prayer, who knows all things ahead of time. Why pray, you know? If this is going to happen, why pray? It's an antinomy. And I think we have to live with those uncertainties and not dogmatize because it drives us in one direction or another. And I think that's what gets us into some of these difficult situations. And I think actually interferes with our ability to minister to people. 
Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan. Utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. I have often said that the some of the most viable words in the Christian religion are, I don't know. Uh, our friend who we're probably both thinking of who has the spiritual gift of criticism also has never met an answer. He didn't have a, a question he didn't have an answer to. I want to, we're talking to Dr. Gene Getz. Um, pastor for forever in the Dallas Fort Worth area, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, author of a lot of great books, including A Measure of a Man and um, an excellent study Bible, if you have a chance to get it. I want to ask you one last question as we go into this, which will also be very controversial for many people. It shouldn't be, but it is. Jesus talks about when he's going to come back. And he actually tells us exactly when he's going to come back. He tells us it's going to be so many days after Antichrist sacrifices in the and the uh, temple, we could calculate out when he says he's going to come back. But he also says he's going to come back when nobody knows. So we have from that a theology of there will be a rapture of believers that we don't know when it'll happen, then a seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus coming back when we can calculate to rule from Jerusalem uh, for a millennium, whether that's a literal thousand years or not. What does that all mean, Gene? What is, what, what is the rapture? What is the resurrection? How else all that? Um, let me just get you. I'm just giving you a softball, easy question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say that there are people that, of course, would disagree uh, with what you've just outlined in terms of a tribulation period and uh, Absolutely. the Absolutely. seven years and then, uh, you know, the thousand year reign of Christ and then the coming of the end. Um, there are different opinions on that. I, I would say up front that I happen to be pre-trib. That is, I believe that the church is going to be removed before the seven-year tribulation that is coming on the earth. Um, and it's going to be a seven-year period. But there are some godly individuals who believe uh, in a post-trib, and that is that Jesus is going to remove the church and come back immediately with the church. Uh, and then there will be the, the the kingdom. Then there are those godly individuals who believe the same Bible we do and who are scholars who believe that uh, we're in the millennium now. They're all millennial. They believe that uh, ultimately all the promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled in the church or are being fulfilled in the church today. And then will come the end when Jesus Christ comes back again. And what I've just outlined, all of these individuals believe the same Bible you and I believe and and believe it's inspired by God and yet have different interpretations. And they're people that we respect. By the oh, way. absolutely respect. 
And uh, and some of them probably could sit down here and just run circles around me in terms of some of the things I believe. And I have to respect that. Um, but to me, the most important thing is the second coming of Jesus and the removing of the church from the earth and then the coming to the earth. And that's where we ought to be thinking and, and living in view of that. Now, I think as we read, and I'm teaching, by the way, I'm redoing the videos right now in the book of Revelation. I can't so wait to I'm in those. the process of working through all this stuff um, and the different points of view and, and different ways you interpret the book of Revelation. Um, but to me, the important thing is that Jesus Christ is going to come again and we need to be ready. Now, um, take me from there. I think we need to deal with extremes there. I think there are people that are so involved in looking forward to the coming of Christ and trying to predict when he's coming and talking about it, being obsessed with it, that they're not about the Father's business. Boy, that's right. Amen. And then we got to be very careful of that. And then there are the, those believers who tend to just sort of live from day to day as if Jesus is never going to come again. It's just not in their thinking. And I think we have to be very careful of that. And one of the things, I'll just be very honest with you, that, you know, we went through a period of time where, where um, you know, the late great planet Earth and Hal Lindsay, and the good, you know. yeah, Hal Lindsey's book and, and what was introduced there and the second coming and the focus on that and even going beyond that, predicting when the Lord was going to come setting dates, um, and and it, it all proved that it wasn't true, some of these things that were stated, and stating he's going to come within a generation, you know. Well, that generation has passed. Um, and you can come to the point as a believer where you say, boy, I've been pumped up for this so many times that I'm just not going to allow this to become a part of my thinking. And that's an extreme. And I think we have to help Christians avoid that. We need to teach the second coming. We need to realize he could come at any moment. I don't think there's any reason he couldn't come at any moment uh, and remove us from this earth um, and come back to this earth and, and the rest of Revelation is fulfilled. Uh, but the important thing Am I living in view of the fact that Jesus could come and I need to be ready? Like in Titus, you know, that we're living godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and doing good until that moment we're removed from this earth. Yeah, at the end of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a pretty stern warning. He says, who is uh, the faithful slave? It's the one that... His master goes away on a long journey, and he comes back to find him, serving him, serving his household. But I'll tell you the truth. If that slave says in his heart, my master has gone away for a long journey, and I don't know when he's going to come back, and he starts eating and drinking with drunkards and beating his fellow slaves, when his master comes back, he will cut him into pieces and throw him into the outer darkness with the hypocrites. Now, to me, I read that as that's one person with a choice. Is he going to be serving Christ when Christ returns? Or is he going to be beating his fellow slaves, meaning he a slave would have beat his fellow slaves back in those days to get them to do his work? 
Or is Jesus going to find us working for him? Or is he going to find us doing nothing, letting other people do what we're supposed to be doing? And uh, that really goes into a lot of what you're saying. Right. And I I, I think that I, I would like to say that in all those positions, as long as people believe the, the word of God, I, I can have fellowship with them. I It's not an issue with me. The important thing, do we believe that Jesus is going to return? And we can have fellowship together. Um, and I think that that's very important. And the other thing I think we have to be very careful of, Ken, is being critical within that spectrum, within those different points of view, and putting other people down, uh, building ourselves up as if we have all the answers. I think we have to be very careful of that. And that's not, to me, that's not compromise. I don't think we should ever compromise um, what we believe. But I think when it comes to some of these issues, we have to be godly and gracious and reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit and be very careful that we're reflecting humility and not pride and arrogance. And insensitivity. You know, a really great thing that kind of goes in with a lot of what you've been saying is when I look at the lives of George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, um, you were talking about Calvinism and, and some of that stuff. You know, maybe the greatest evangelist ever on the face of the earth was George Whitfield. I mean, he used to go around uh, talking to crowds of 30,000 in England, and he was a, a, a raving Calvinist. I mean, he was very much so much so that John Wesley used to really get angry with him. They were friends. They'd, they'd studied at Cambridge together. And Wesley used to actually preach against Whitfield sometimes because he Wes, Wesley had his doctrinal beliefs and Whitfield had his. And Charles Wesley, the one who wrote so many hymns, was sort of always trying to tie the two together. Yet those two guys had very opposite doctrinal stances, and God used both of them massively. And as I've often said is, if those guys couldn't agree, then who am I to take a stand? And I don't want to pick many hills that I'm going to die on. And when I look at who who's on the board of Promise Keepers, um, A.R. Bernard, Sam Rodriguez, um, great Bible teachers, I don't agree with them on a lot of stuff, but I don't care because I do agree with them on is that we are both heading towards the cross and we both want to call men back to masculinity in Christ. And so Sam and I, he's a brilliant thinker. We get together and we'll have discussions all the time and I'll bring up a controversial issue and say, Sam, tell me why you believe this. And I don't do it to have a debate. I do it to learn. And Sam will stake out his position. He'll patiently listen while I stake out mine and we'll leave usually still disagreeing, but much more enlightened on why the other one thinks that way. But it's really not that important. I do it to sharpen myself in scripture, not because I'm trying to convince Sam to change his mind nor that I think I'm going to change mine. But who knows? Well, sometimes someone says something, and I go, gosh, I didn't think about it that way. So Jesus Christ prayed to the Father that we would be one as he and the Father are one. He wouldn't have prayed something that couldn't come true, as James Robinson famously says. I do believe that can be answered in our time if we humble ourselves and stop worrying about all the stuff. Is Jesus going to come before the tribulation? I really hope so. I don't know so. The Bible's not clear on that. Is he going to come after? Is he going to come in the middle? I, you know, I, I read a, a book written by a, a, one of the original Pentecostal pastors in the late 1800s who claimed that there's going to be several raptures, that 
based on the rank and where you are in your level of holiness is when you're going to go up. That some people are going to go before, some people are going to go in the middle, and some people are going to go after. I, I, I don't know. I love to have these discussions, but I would encourage people to just keep your heart and your mind open. And if it doesn't disagree with scripture, if it disagrees with scripture, then it's false, it's lies, and we don't we don't deal with that. But let's let's really sharpen each other and in humility come together in in prayer and say, how can we teach and learn from each other? Amen and amen. Well, um, I thought that was pretty awesome. Thanks for taking on some of these really sort of complicated issues, Gene. These are hard. And it's so it's so great to have someone of your mind that can just spit them out. Because you and I des- decided on these three questions right before we started. So it wasn't like you <laughs> it wasn't like you studied. You had these in your mind. And I said, hey, let, what about these three? And we, we went with these three. But this was right off the top of your head. And so uh, I appreciate this. And I would just say yet again to anybody listening to this, to get your study Bible, um, get the measure of a man, and get those barcodes that uh, are phenomenal in the study Bible where just take your phone, you put it over the barcode on a certain passage, and there is Gene Getz talking about what that means, uh, which is just phenomenal. Ken, I want to say thank you for the privilege of being with you. I want to thank you for your leadership of Promise Keepers. I, I feel there's such a great need today for reaching men and and helping them to become what God wants them to become. And uh, I know this is a great sacrifice for you. It really is. And uh, you're committed to it. And uh, I'm praying for you. And I want to do everything I can to support you. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.